But if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we'll begin reading with verse 22 of that chapter. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22. Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. In verse 22, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Father, we come before you thanking you for your many blessings. We thank you for your word. And we can hold a copy from, read from, and study from. And thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we sing about so much tonight. And we're glorifying you and honoring you. And Father, that's what we want to do. And we just want to praise your name for everything that you've done for us. Father, I thank you for our church. I thank you for each one that's here. And, and Lord, I just pray that you'll bless us, meet with us, strengthen us, meet each and every need. Father, we're needy people. And we need your touch and we need your strength. And, Father, many need your healing. Father, there are many that don't feel well. And, Lord, I just pray that you'll touch them. We think of many with doctor's appointments and, and past surgery. And, Lord, I just pray that you'll touch each and every one, give them a complete healing. And, Father, meet each and every need. And, Father, I do pray that if one doesn't know you as a personal Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. And, Father, we thank you for all that you're going to do for us. In Jesus' name, and amen. I want to speak to you this evening on the subject, what kind of eyes do you have? Now, I know some of you are thinking right away, well, I have eyes that need glasses, or I have eyes that have cataracts, or I got brown eyes, or blue eyes, or green eyes, but what kind of eyes do we have? Here in, in Matthew chapter 6, the Lord says, the light of the body is the eye, verse 22. If therefore thine eye be single... Thy whole body shall be full of light. Do we have single eyes? Verse 23, But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Verse 22 talks about the single eye. The reward of having a single eye is that the whole body, the Bible says, will be full of light. The consequences of not having a single eye is that the whole body is filled with the opposite, filled with darkness instead of light. It's very important for us as Christians to have a single eye. The word translated single here is sometimes translated in other places of the Bible as simplicity or liberality, bountiful, or singleness. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5 says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart. Same word, single eye, singleness of your heart, as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.20 says, Servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. The single eyes focused on God. It is a single heart. The word single means grasping by faith and with the whole heart God's direction for your life. God wants us to know and grasp his direction for our life. 
It's the opposite of what James said in chapter 1 and verse 8. He said, a double-minded man is what? Unstable in all his ways. So verse 22 talks about the single eye. Verse 23 talks about the evil eye. At least five times, the Bible uses the expression evil eye. And I want us to look at some of those passages tonight that will help us to understand what this passage or what this phrase means. What does it mean to have an evil eye? What is an evil eye? First of all, the evil eye of the stingy or the miserly. Those who are stingy, those who are miserly. The story is given in 1 Kings chapter 4 about a certain creditor. He was alarmed when he heard about the news of a man that owed him a large amount of money that had just died. The creditor wasn't much concerned about the grief of the widow, nor was she concerned about the loss that was felt by the two sons that had lost their father. All he was focused on was one thing, and that was the money that was owed to him. As quickly as he could, he left his home, and he visited the bereaved widow and the two sons. And what he saw in their home should have shocked him into compassion, or at least into pity for them. What he found was they were destitute. There was nothing in the house. There was not even there was nothing there but just a little pot of oil. Seeing no furniture, seeing no valuables that he could take in payment for the debt that was owed to him, the mean creditor turned his stingy eyes, as you know, towards those two sons. And the widow cried out in anguish. She knew what he could do. Legally, he could take the sons and could make them become bondsmen, servants, to pay the debt that was owed to him. That account from 2 Kings chapter 4 is a striking example of the kinds of circumstances that demand generosity in the law of God. Notice how lack of generosity is given to the poor in giving to the poor is found in this thought, the evil eye. I want you to go back a minute with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. In, in beginning in verse number 7. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. You got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you're in the early part of your Bible. Deuteronomy 15, and look at verse number 7. The Lord talks about this lack of generosity and how we're to care for the poor. These, of course, are the laws that were given to the, New, the, the Old Testament people, the nation of Israel. He says in verse 7, If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. So he's talking about the Israelites, about a fellow Israelites. They see one that's poor. They're not to shut their hand. They're not to, to, to not give, to not help. Verse 8, but thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there is not a thought of thy wicked heart, saying the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him naught, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest unto him, because 
that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works and in all that thou puttest thine hand unto. For the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to the needy in thy land. God desires his people to be generous to the poor. He desires us to be generous to our neighbors. And laws and statues were given by God to the Israelites to encourage that generation or that generosity. If you look in the first part of that chapter, look at verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, At the end of every seven years thou shalt make a release. They had the year of release at the end of each seven years, and at the end of 49 years, the 50th year was a year of jubilee. It was a, it was a, a big release. But at the end of every seven years, they made a year of release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth aught unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. So they, they loaned money or whatever it was, but at the end of the seven years, the debt was considered released. It was paid. It was forgiven. Verse 3, of a foreigner thou mayest exact it again, but that which is thine with thy brother thine hand shall release. Save when there shall be no poor among you, for the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Only if thou carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow and thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. God said to the nation of Israel, I want you to be generous to the poor. And you can loan to them, you, you loan what they need, but at the end of the seven years there's a release. You didn't have to release the foreigner, you didn't have to release the wealthy, but the poor, they were to release them. And then the Lord said to them as a nation, if you do this as a nation, I will bless your nation and God said, you will become a nation that loans to other nations, but he said, you will not borrow from other nations. You know, it's one of the problems with America today. We've gotten too far in debt to other nations, haven't we? If we were following God's ways as a nation, God would be blessing us and we would be lending and not have to be borrowing. The opposite of stingy and miserly is generous. Generous. God wants us to be generous people. He, does, he wants us not to have the evil eye, but to have a generous eye. During the reign of Queen Elizabeth, Sir Philip Sidney lay on the field of battle in great pain and with a very high fever. He called for a cup of water, and with great difficulty, the cup of water was brought to him. He was about to take a drink of that cup of water when he noticed the longing gaze of a wounded comrade who was dying of thirst. Sir Philip Sidney stretched out his hand and gave the water to the dying man, saying, Soldier, thy need is greater than mine. That's a real generous person, isn't it? And that's the kind of person God wants us to be. No matter what your situation may be in life, you can look around you and find people that we could say, Thy need is greater than my need. The stingy or miserly person versus the generous person. The second passage of Scripture that talks about the evil eye is in 2 Kings chapter 6. The evil eye of the thief. The thief is the one who takes by force. Ben-Hadad was the king of Syria. He marched his huge army into the capital city 
of Israel. Thousands of Israelites found safety in that city, behind the walls of the city. But soon, they had run into the city for safety, but they ended up facing a greater threat, which was starvation. Food became so scarce, the Bible says, that a donkey's head was sold for $50, and a pint of dove's dung was sold for $3. One day, the king of Israel was walking on the wall, and he passed two women, and one of the women cried out to him and said, Help, my lord, O king! And the king answered her and asked what her problem was. And listen to what she said to him in 2 Kings 6, 28 and 29. This woman said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him, and I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him, and she hid her son. Well, we, we kind of, that's kind of repulsive to think of that, isn't it? And when the king heard those words, he was equally repulsed by it. He ripped his clothes and put on sackcloth in grief. But you know, that siege was predicted by God many years before that. He warned the people that if they rejected his commandments and his word, he said a nation of fierce countenance would besiege their cities and they would become so desperate that they would eat their own children. In Deuteronomy 28. Let me ask you a question. These women were going to eat the son to save the woman from dying of starvation. Is it okay to destroy the child in order to save the mother's life? To kill or eat the child so that the starving mother could live? The response to extreme adversity is defined by God as the result of an evil eye. You say, preacher, how terrible that is. And it is terrible. How does that apply to us today? It's long been understood that one justifiable reason for an abortion is to save the life of the mother. During the siege in Israel, the mother would die if she didn't kill her own son to save her life. Is that situation any different or more extreme than what we have in our world today when we choose to abort and take the life of the baby to save the life of the mother. Look at a couple of verses with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 14 and 15. Listen to what God says. He's making a parallel to the church, but I want you to see what he says in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body... Is it therefore not of the body? In other words, that baby is a part of the mother's body. You don't kill the baby. Amen? And we have many Christians bought into the idea that it's okay to kill the baby if we save the life of the mother. How many of you ladies, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, our dad, our husbands, men the same way, how many of us would lay down our lives to protect our children and to save their life? 
But our world's telling us the opposite. They're saying, take the life of the baby to save us and to save our life. The opposite of the thief, the one who takes by force, is the one who gives by choice. The one who gives by choice. I read a story about a flock of Canadian geese that built their nests and laid their eggs in the spring. And then suddenly an unseasonable snowstorm came howling from the north, and the snow continued to fall, and it got deeper and deeper until it got three feet deep. Any time as the snow was coming, those geese could have flown away. Instead, they chose to stay on their nests and to protect the young that were developing in the eggs. Several days later, the sun came out, and the snow melted, and an awesome sight was revealed. Scores of dead geese were still sitting on their nests. They had laid down their lives for their young. Don't you think we ought to be more willing to lay down our lives for our young than even those geese were? Another example is when Jacob's beloved wife Rachel in the Old Testament was in hard labor. It finally came down to the point of her death. If Rachel had destroyed the child in order to save her life, the Apostle Paul would have never been born because he was a descendant of the child that was born to Rachel, Benjamin. She gave her life in order to save the life of the child. So you have the stingy and miserly versus the generous. Then you have the thief, the one who takes by choice versus the one who gives by choice. The third passage that talks about the evil eye is found in 2 Samuel 13, and it talks about the evil eye of deliberate deceptiveness. Deliberate deceptiveness. It is the hypocrite. This is a person who has a hidden motive for his own personal gain. He's a hypocrite. In 2 Samuel 13, a prince planned a great feast. The guest list included all of the important dignitaries of the land, However, a special invitation was given to one of the king's sons. The king's son accepted the invitation, and when he arrived at the banquet, he began to indulge himself in all of the delicacies and the wine and all that was lavishly provided for him, and soon he became influenced and intoxicated by the wine. And at that point, the signal was given by the prince who had invited him, and an armed servant came over, and thrust a knife into the king's son and killed him. You see, the real purpose of the dinner was accomplished. For this deceitful prince had planned two years ago to gain revenge on the king's son because the king's son had defiled his sister. Another one of those king's sons gave us some instructions about all of that. Look at Proverbs chapter 23 with me in verse number 1. And perhaps Solomon wrote these words as he thought about the incident of his half-brother being killed. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse number 1, it says, When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee, Boy, if that son would have considered what was before him, he might have spared his life. And put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Be not desirous of his dainties, for they are deceitful meat. Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. 
Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainties. This king's son had an evil eye. Solomon said, don't eat what's provided by the person who has an evil eye. The hypocrite, the deceptive. None of us are exempt from the possibility of us becoming deceptive or being hypocritical. And we have to be on guard to that. Even the Apostle Peter in the New Testament ate with the Gentiles. And when the Jews arrived, he then refused to eat with the Gentiles because he knew that the Jews wouldn't want him to do that. And I want you to notice Paul's condemnation of that in Galatians chapter 2. Look at verse number 11. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 11 Listen to what Paul says. Paul confronts him with his hypocrisy. And it says in Galatians 2 verse 11, But when Peter was come to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fear, fearing them which were of the concision. And the others, the other Jews, dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was also carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, Before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? You see, Peter was a Jew. But now he's off and he's eating with the Gentiles and fellowshipping with them. And, but, he, but, but he's afraid of what the Jews are going to think because the Jews and the Gentiles, they, they weren't the best of friends. And he's concerned about what they're going to think and especially because he's taking the gospel to them. And so when the Jews come, he won't eat with the Gentiles. He kind of stays away from them, stays over with the Jews. Peter said, basically he said, Peter, or Paul said, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. We sometimes do the same thing. We can be around certain people, but when other people are around that don't like them, then we won't be around them, we'll be with them. You know, we can become hypocritical, can't we? And it's because we have an evil eye. We become deceptive in our own life. The opposite of deceptiveness or hypocrisy is being just and honest. It's being just and honest. Savage Indians' raids and massacres among the colonists in early America were common occurrences, especially when the leader of the colony acted deceitfully towards the Indian chief or his people. Sometimes colonists would meet with the Indians and they would make treaties which said one thing to the Indians, but they meant something else to them. You ever hear the expression, speaking with a forked tongue? That would be an expression of that sort of deceitfulness. There was one colonial leader, however, who spoke with the Indians with complete sincerity. In 1681, King Charles II granted William Penn a great tract of land, now known as Pennsylvania. William Penn used that tract of land to establish what he called a holy experiment. To the Indians, he wrote this. He said, I have great love and regard toward you. 
1682, Penn sailed up the Delaware River and saw the colony for the first time. Later that year, he made his first treaty with the Indians. His dealing with the Indians was so just that the Indians never attacked his colony. Why? Because he wasn't hypocritical with them. He was just and honest. Can I ask you a question tonight? Are we always just and honest? May God help us not to be hypocritical. So we have the stingy and the miserly versus the generous. We have the thief, the one who takes by choice versus the one who gives by choice. We have the deliberate deceptive, that is the hypocrite, versus the just and honest. The fourth use of the passage of the evil eye speaks of the greedy. The greedy. In Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 and 11. If you look over there with me for just a moment, Nehemiah chapter 5. And look at verse number 9. Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse number 9. And it says, Also I said, Is it not good that ye do? Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money, and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. This was a time of national urgency. A special charter had been granted by one of the conquering kings of the nation of Israel, allowing the subjects in a distant city to obtain timber from his farmer, from his forest in order to rebuild the walls and the gates which had been burned and broken down. And the people worked hard. They were busy doing what they were supposed to do. However, the noblemen and the rulers, I would call them the politicians of their day, they lived in the city, but they did not participate in the huge task of rebuilding the city. Instead, they saw the opportunity to make a large profit from what was going on without doing any of the work. So they freely loaned money to the workers that needed it to buy food for their families so that they continue working on the walls. And before long, the workers had used up all that money and all of their assets, and the creditors began to take their children. These are their own people of the nation of Israel. They began to take their own children as bondservants, and the people cried out to their leader, to Nehemiah, and Nehemiah soundly rebuked these noblemen. He said again in verse 11, Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, their land, their vineyards, their olive yards, their houses, also the hundredth part of the money, 100% of the money, you return it, and of the corn and the wine and the oil that ye exacted of them. Nehemiah was able to convince these noblemen to stop their greedy action. And the reason he was able to do that was because of his testimony of his own generosity. The noblemen and the rulers agreed with the great assembly that had been gathered against them and they promised to restore all that they had taken and to require nothing of them. Not only did Nehemiah condemn these noblemen and the rulers of Jerusalem for enriching themselves at the expense of their own brethren, but God also condemned them for their motives behind this action. In Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 22, the Lord said, he that hasteth to be rich 
hath an evil eye, and considereth not that poverty shall come upon them. He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye. You know, when I think of hasting to be rich, one of the things I think of is the, the lottery that we have in our day to day. And people who spend their money, and God says that when we haste to be rich, we have an evil eye. There's all kinds of predators on the internet. And especially our seniors deal with all kinds of predators who try to find some way to haste to become rich at somebody else's expense. Whenever I become rich at the, at the expense of somebody else, there's a problem with it. And God has a problem with that. I've become greedy. The opposite of the greedy is the one who has kindness towards others. Instead of taking from others, we're giving to others. Amen? Instead of taking and getting from me, I'm giving from what I have to help others so that they can be blessed. John Chapman is an American folk hero. His story is loved by children even today. Over a hundred years after his death, this pioneer once owned a home in Pittsburgh Landing, and he gave his home to a widow and to her several children that she had. For the next 40 years, he traveled across the, the sparsely settled parts of Ohio and Indiana and Illinois. And as he journeyed across the territory, he practiced herbal medicine. He gave whatever money he made from it to the poor. At each cabin and each farm where he visited, he left a small gift that many would enjoy for generations to come. After digging a small, small hole in the ground, Mr. Chapman would reach into his old battered sack and pull out one small brown seed. Burying it in the little hole, he would bow his head and ask God to make it grow. Thus, Johnny Appleseed sowed the seeds of kindness. He planted trees, apple trees, all across hundreds of thousands of acres across the Ohio Valley until his death in 1845. He was a man who was the opposite of greedy. He was a man who showed kindness towards others. What kind of kindness are we showing towards other people? Are we greedy? Are we kind? The fifth example of the evil eye is that of the contentious person. The contentious person. These are the touchy, the oversensitive. They're the grouchy, the sulky, the cantankerous, the complaining, the cross, the quarrelsome. It was harvest time and, a, and the owner of a farm went into town early in the morning and he hired some migrant workers. He agreed with them to pay what they would receive for a day's work and they began to work. After several hours, the landowner realized that these migrants would not finish the work for the day, and so he returned to the town to find more help. He told the new workers that he would pay them what was just. They agreed to this and went to work. Three more times during the day, the owner went out into the town and hired more laborers, assuming that he would pay them what was right. In the evening, all the workers gathered together for their pay, those that had worked the least were paid first, and to their amazement they received a full day's wage. The second and the third and the fourth groups were also given a full day's pay. 
Finally, the workers that were hired early in the day and had worked all day long through the heat of the sun came and got their pay, and they got the same pay, a full day's wage. They saw what the others got, and they were very upset about it because they had worked longer. However, they only received what they had agreed to in the morning. Immediately, they began to murmur and complain. In Matthew chapter 20, it says, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Their response to the one who hired them can be described as the contentious. They were contentious. They were argumentative. They were upset. And that contention is condemned by God as one who has an evil eye. Listen to what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 13. It says, But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? The goodness and the justice of that farmer is seen by the questions that he asked of those who came for their money. Before hiring the last group of workers, he asked those workers this question. He said, why stand ye here all day idle? In other words, why have you been in town here work, waiting all day and not doing anything? And they said, because no man hath hired us. You see, they had been there all day, but nobody hired them. God, in his wisdom, adds to this story so we can understand why the owner was just in giving them a day's wage. Each of these men had a family to feed and needed a full day's wage. Each of them waited into town all day long for someone to hire them. Once he was hired, it became the responsibility of the man who hired them to pay him not only for the hours of his labor, but also to pay for the hours of his availability. And he gave them a full day's wage. The opposite of the contentious man is calmness and courage. It's calmness and courage. Perhaps no Christian in the 18th century was attacked and ridiculed and falsely accused more than John Wesley. Some historians go so far as to say that the fiery denunciations against John Wesley and the Methodists have never been surpassed in the history of England. Yet John Wesley responded to all of that with incredible calmness and amazing courage. John himself wrote, and I quote, We were everywhere represented as mad dogs and treated accordingly. In sermons, newspapers, and pamphlets of all kinds, we were painted as unheard of monsters, but this moved us not. We went on testifying salvation by faith, both by small and great, and by counting our lives dear unto ourselves, not counting our lives dear unto ourselves, so that we might finish our course with peace. A crowd gathered one Wednesday, or in, in, a, in a town actually, Wenesbury, England, and they shouted and they hurled bottles and rocks and insults at John Wesley's message. The interesting thing was the crowds that John Wesley preached to 
were anywhere between 20 to 40,000 people. But the meetings were oftentimes interrupted by violent mobs. While preaching at Mooresfield, a mob met him, broke down the table where he stood, and then abused him and insulted him. Undaunted by what took place, John Wesley climbed up on a stone wall nearby and brought the mob to silence with his earnest pleas. And the entire audience, captivated by this man with his single eye, with his calmness and his courage. A man whose life was filled with light. A man whose response had no hint of contentiousness. No complaining, no griping. Calm and courageous. I wonder tonight, do we have an evil eye? Or do we have a single eye that's filled with light? Do we have the stingy or miserly eye? Or do we have a generous eye? Are we like the thief that takes by force? Or are we giving by choice? Are we the hypocrite, deliberately deceptive? Or are we just and honest in all of our dealings? Are we greedy? Or are we kind to other people? Are we contentious? Or are we just and honest with those around us? Do we have the single eye, the one who grasps by faith and with our whole heart God's direction for our life? And are we willing to follow that direction and to be what God wants us to be? Do you have a single eye or do you have an evil eye? Let's pray together. Father, would you help us that our eye is a single eye and that our whole body and life is filled with light instead of having the evil eye and our life filled with darkness. May we walk in the light as you are in the light as John says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. How we thank you for the light. You are the light of the world. And we have the privilege to live in that light and to let our light shine in such a way that others will glorify our Father which is in heaven. As others look on our life, Lord, may they see light and not darkness. May they be drawn towards that light and not repelled by the darkness. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.